Well, good morning. Glad to be with you guys here this morning. I don't know when it comes to maybe you and your spouse or a friend or maybe a roommate that you have. Some of us in the room are probably more kind and compassionate than others in the sense of you might be more quick to forgive or you might be someone that likes to like not forgive as quickly and like to hold on to a grudge. Uh, when it comes to Christina and I, that uh, she is the more kind and compassionate person. And so when we sometimes have arguments or disagreements or fights or anything, uh, like that, she most often, and by most often, I might mean always, uh, apologizes first, which, you know, it sounds very nice and sweet that she does that. The problem is uh, when your spouse apologizes to you, you really don't have any other options. Like you can't like say, well, I'm not sorry. Like you, you gotta, like you keep, you gotta, argue, you gotta acknowledge it, you gotta apologize back. And it's frustrating to me because sometimes I just want to be angry. Like sometimes I just want to be frustrated. Sometimes I just want to be mad. Like I don't, I don't always want to, you know, make up right away. Like, I just want to sit just for a minute. Just let me be mad. But when you, when you apologize, you can't. Now, I share that because this morning we're finishing our time in the book of Jonah. And if you've been with us, uh, or maybe you haven't, you might be somewhat familiar with the story. This is where we're going to find Jonah this morning in Jonah chapter 4 as we conclude our series. Up until this point, God calls the prophet Jonah to go to the land of the Ninevites to preach them, to call them to repentance. He doesn't want to do it. Instead, he goes as far away as he can in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat. They run into a storm. They eventually throw him over. Uh, he gets saved by a giant fish, and eventually his fish spits him out onto dry land. He repents to God. He goes to Nineveh, as we saw last week. He preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent. They actually turn and repent, which Jonah doesn't want them to do because he wants them to be judged. And so he's angry. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Jonah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone, you want to follow us along, there's a Bible underneath your seat. We'll be on page 822 there. And so here is where we pick up the story. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, again, after the Ninevites have been preached to and they are repenting for their evilness and their wicked ways, here's what it says. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. So real quick, I just want to point this out. Jonah is furious because the Ninevites did what he told them to do, right? He told them to repent so that they would not receive God's wrath and judgment. And then they do it, which he didn't really want them to do because he wanted them to experience God's wrath and judgment. And so he's frustrated. Now, here's what I know. Sometimes it can be hard for you and for I, uh, when we read you know, what's going on in these biblical narratives and what's happening with these biblical characters, it can be hard for us sometimes to, I think, fully appreciate the emotion that they're feeling, right? Because we're reading the story, so we kind of get it, but we're like, we're not Jonah, and so we don't really know all of the reasons why he doesn't like the Ninevites and all, the, all of the, the history and the background that goes into that. And so we can, we can see that he's angry, but it might be hard for us to fully kind of get to, the, 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 to understand how angry he actually is. So I thought I would really quick uh, give us a modern example of what Jonah might have been feeling uh, so that we can better uh, follow along what's happening in Jonah chapter 4. So pay attention to the screens. Ooh, brownies. I'm taking two so I can parcel them up and eat them at my leisure later on. Much healthier. You're taking two? Yeah, um, but one of them is very heavy. Yeah. Why don't you send that to him in Costa Rica? Um, I'm just gonna hand it to him right now. Okay, weirdo. Why is that? Why is that weird? She said she's gonna give it to him right now. <laughs> she's probably going to because they sit next to each other. Yeah, they used to. Toby works here again. Oh, can you imagine? Oh no. Oh, you don't know. I don't know. What? You should probably just meander back there. Take a look. See if hmm. he's. See if he's back. Dare I? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to, for old time's sake. Oh, 
great practical joke, Jim. Can we go to the annex? No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 <laughs> if you've never seen The Office, I'm sorry you're missing out. But what do we see there, right? He's very angry. He's very frustrated, right? This is probably, to some degree, how Jonah felt to, towards the Ninevites. He's angry and he's upset. Now, what's interesting is that Jonah's response here is in stark contrast uh, to what we see in the previous verse at the end of Jonah chapter 3, uh, where God turns away his anger towards the Ninevites. Jonah now becomes angry. Uh, and so here's what happens next, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. So Jonah prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents uh, from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Here's what's happening here. Jonah originally fled. Right? He originally didn't follow God's command uh, to go to the Ninevites because he knew God's character. Right? He knew that God was compassionate. He knew that God was kind. He knew that God would forgive the Ninevites like God always forgives us when we repent and turn to our ways. And so he's angry. What's interesting is he actually quotes here from the most quoted from passage in all of Scripture in Scripture, and that is in Exodus chapter 34. It'll be on the screen. Exodus chapter 34, uh, Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai uh, for the second time where he's getting the, receiving the Ten Commandments from God because the first time they were destroyed due to their... All right, it's a party this morning. All right, I don't know what's happening. Anyway, Jonah chapter 34, I'll read it to you. If you since you can't read it on yourself, you don't want to flip there. Jonah, or sorry, uh, Moses is on the mountain. He's in front of the Lord. Here's what happens. It says this in verse 6. The Lord passed in front of him and in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. What's happening here uh, is that Jonah is quoting from this passage. And what's happening here? We see uh, that God is a loving and compassionate God. As a side note, if you're familiar with the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament as well, uh, God's love, love, kindness, and forgiveness is a major theme in the prophet Hosea, which is relevant because he is a contemporary of uh, Jonah. And so what we see here again, Jonah is mad. He's angry. Why? Because God is kind and compassionate to people. Now, ironically, Jonah benefited from all of these things that the Ninevites also benefited from, right? He benefited from these attributes of God. In Jonah chapter 2, when God rescues him and gives him grace and kindness and compassion, even though he doesn't deserve it, right? Jonah doesn't see the disconnect here uh, between his prayers and how God has responded and rescued him in the same way that God has responded and rescued the Ninevites, right? He thinks he deserves it, and he doesn't see it's a disconnect to also see that the Ninevites also deserve it. Now, what's, I think, particularly interesting and fascinating, particularly maybe for our cultural moment in which we live today, is that in verse 2, we see something interesting. In verse 2 of Jonah, where he talks about God's kindness and compassion and all of these things, we see that he has a correct knowledge of God. We see that Jonah knows who God is, but yet he has a bad heart. In other words, you could think of it like this. Uh, you think of it this way, that a, a good theology can still leave you with a bad heart. 
good theology, knowing intellectually who God is, can still leave you with a bad heart. What do we know here? Jonah is literally a prophet. He's literally called by God. He knows who God is. And yet, at least in this area of his life, when it comes to the Ninevites, he is blinded to how he should view and care for them in the same way that God views and cares for them. Now, I say that to, to make this statement in, in a minute, and I just want to say, if, you, if you're part of New City, I hope you know, I, I, I never say things to be controversial for the sake of being controversial, but I do think when we read Scripture, we need to let it, to, let it convict and, and, and shape us in the areas that it needs to convict and shape us. Uh, this is the problem if you hear the phrase, just preach the gospel. The problem with when people say, just preach the gospel, don't worry about anything else, don't try to fix things that are going, just preach the gospel. The problem is following Jesus is not just an intellectual exercise. Following Jesus is not simply knowing all the right things about God. Following Jesus is allowing him to shape and transform your heart and your life so that you and I can become more like him. And I just want to give you a couple of examples of, of well-known figures in Christian history who had a really great theology of God, who quote-unquote preached the gospel, and yet had severe blindness in their own life. For example, Origen, who lived in the second and third century, one of Christianity's first major well-known apologists, uh, refuting some of the claims against Christianity. Uh, he, a lot of his great works, a lot, of, a lot of it helped the church, at least from an intellectual defense of the faith. Origen uh, had this belief in his writings that, that certain people were superior and certain other people were inferior. Now, he said that this was due to people's, uh, people group's sinfulness. So because they sinned, uh, they were less than, they weren't as equal as to other human beings. Uh, ironically, however, the inferior people were all tied to certain geographical locations and certain ethnicities of which he wasn't a part of. And so he, he viewed certain people as inferior, even though he knew God Right, and know that we're all equal before Jesus. Right? He knew that, and yet in his life, in this area, he didn't fight, fully have a good heart. If you want to fast forward, Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s, uh, he was one of the great reformers of the church. Uh, he, he brought a lot of necessary reformations that we needed, that the church desperately needed, a wonderful theologian and thinker. Uh, he was extremely anti-Semitic extremely anti-Semitic. In fact, in 1543, he published a book by the title, The Jews and Their Lies, in which he called for uh, the destruction of synagogues, for Jewish schools, and for their homes to literally be destroyed. He said that uh, rabbis should be forbidden to teach in public. Uh, he said that, uh, that they should be stripped of their legal protection, that Jews should, on the highways between major cities, that they should not be protected. And he even said that it is not, there's nothing wrong with stealing their money because they don't deserve it. In fact, he actually wrote this in his book. He says that the Jews are a base, whoring people. That is, no people of God, and their boast of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. Right? This is a man who knew God, had a good theology, and in this area in his life towards the Jewish people, he had a terrible heart. I'll give you just one more modern example from, you know, from the United States in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, who was a, a big leader in the Second Great Awakening where thousands of people came to know Jesus all throughout the colonies of the United States, a, a magnificent theologian, but he also owned slaves, right? He knew God, and in this in a particular area in his life, as a lot of the culture did, was blinded and did not have God's heart towards all people. Now, I say that not to say that these people weren't saved, not at all to say that they didn't love Jesus, but to say that just like them, 
You and I can have certain cultural blinders that if we are not pursuing God and asking him to reveal to us the areas in which our lives that do not follow and honor him, that we can have a good theology and we can have a bad heart. I'll give you another example. Here's what we know, right? We don't just preach the gospel to abortion. What do we do? We talk about Jesus, we fund, uh, 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 we fund pregnancy centers, uh, we volunteer, we help women who feel like they have no other choice to know that God cares for them, that we care for them, that we try to resource and equip them. We don't just tell them about Jesus, we live out the gospel and try to help them, right? We don't just preach the gospel to sex trafficking, right? We give to organizations, we, we, we share about, you know, the atrocities that happen, we talk about how a, a large percentage of women who are involved in pornography are actually sex trafficked, and to say that pornography is okay, while also to say sex trafficking is wrong, is an extreme disconnect, right? We don't just preach the gospel to these things. We put our, we put our actions to, or we put our beliefs to action, and we do something, right? What this means for us is that following Jesus isn't a seminary class. It's a lifestyle, Following Jesus is not a seminary class. It is a lifestyle. And so we need to understand, like Jonah in this moment, good theology can still leave you and I with a bad heart. We need to take what we know about God and ask him to change our entire life so that we can love and care for other people the same way that God loves and cares for us. And in this moment, Jonah is missing that. And so we'll continue in Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Here's what happens next. After he says that he wants to die and he no longer wants to live, it says this. The Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? Right? God's reply to Jonah here is pretty simple. Right? And in what follows, what we're going to see is that Jonah responds uh, with anger, or God responds rather to Jonah's anger by subjecting him to an extreme Middle Eastern climate heat. Now, this is significant because the Hebrew verb hurrah means also to be angry and also to me means to be hot. And so his anger is going to lead to him experiencing the hot, hot Middle Eastern climate. And so Jonah wants to die, and God's like, do you actually have a right to be angry? Do you even know why you're mad? And so here's what he says, verse 5. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. So Jonah leaves the city of Nineveh. He's going to wait outside the city because God said that destruction would come in 40 days if they didn't repent. They did repent, and so Jonah probably knows that they're not going to be destroyed. But regardless, he leaves the city to sit out and see what's going to happen with it. Now, uh, there's not any shade to be found, and so he kind of constructs his own shade, if you will. But then God uh, gives him a plant that, that's even a better protector of the, sh- of the heat for him. Uh, and so just like God appointed a fish to rescue Jonah in chapter 2, he now appoints a plant to rescue Jonah in chapter 4. And again, we see the disconnect of Jonah, right? He's pleased with the plant, and he's pleased with, with God's mercy towards him, and yet he's displeased with God's mercy towards the Ninevites, right? He is happy that he has been rescued yet again, but he is not happy that the Ninevites have been rescued yet again. And to put this maybe in modern language, what is going on here, especially for those of us that might be followers of Christ this morning, here's what we need to see and understand for what's going on here. That the ultimate form of Christian hypocrisy is denying to others what God has graciously given, given to you. 
right? The ultimate form of Christian hypocrisy is denying to others what God graciously gave to you, right? When God gives us grace and kindness and forgiveness, and yet we don't want him to give it to other people, this is a hypocrisy in our belief, right? This is the, the good theology that we can have, but leads us to a bad heart. And in some ways, this is what, uh, what's been made, made popular uh, in 2020, this idea of cancel culture, right? Cancel culture is like, if you do something wrong, you're done. We want nothing to do with you. We want you to close down your business. Now, to be fair, there are certain actions and certain things that are said that certainly do require consequences, right? This is not to say you should do whatever you want and get away with it. However, for those of us that are in Christ, we should not be so quick to try to cancel and erase people and not give people the grace and kindness that God has given to us. And I think a really good example of this happened about a month and a half ago. Uh, there was a really well-known white pastor who was hosting a conversation on racial injustice and racism and systematic racism, all these things. It was a really good conversation. But in the conversation, uh, this white pastor <coughs> referred to white people not having to be subjected to, to slavery and having certain benefits that African-Americans haven't had in our country as a white blessing. Now, clearly, that is a very poor choice of words, right? It has the connotation of white people are, are blessed by God and are better, so they have, been, uh, they, have, they have not had to experience certain hardships that African-Americans and black and brown people have experienced. And so he rightly got a lot of pushback for saying that white people have experienced a white blessing. Now, he came out shortly after and apologized, and like it was a real apology, not like, I'm sorry, you guys were mad, but like he said, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm deeply sorry for everyone that I offended, I shouldn't have used those words, and, and, and gave a really good apology. Now, following that, uh, there was a well-known uh, Christian hip-hop artist named KB, and here is what he tweeted in reply to this pastor's apology. He says this, it'll be on the screen. He says, this is the church. We will rebuke you when you are wrong. We will forgive you when you repent. But we will not cancel you when you are down, for Christ will not cancel us. Cancel culture is not kingdom culture. We don't just applaud the righteous. We restore the fallen. Right? And we read that and we say, yes, this is what the gospel does. This is how the gospel, the implication of the gospel, how it changes how we, how we treat people. But I would say this, that there is a big difference between applauding this sentiment and actually living it. Right? It's really easy for us to live that and say, yes, that's how we should react. That's how we should love people the way Christ has loved us until we're in a situation where somebody has deeply wronged and hurt us and then we don't want to do that where they've wronged us and they've apologized and we say we still want nothing to do with them. We don't want to give them the grace that God has given us. We love this sentiment and so we actually have to live it. Now, what's interesting, again, it's, it's Jewish tradition to read the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, and to constantly ask yourself, where are you being like Jonah? It's tradition to read this and say, I am like Jonah. Where in my life am, am I like Jonah, running from God? disobeying God, not being kind and compassionate to others like Jonah wasn't to others, even though God was kind and compassionate to him. Maybe you can think of it this way. Are we more excited when bad people fall, whether truly evil people or people who just like vote or think differently than us or have different ideologies than us? Are we more excited when bad things happen to them so we can say, see, I told you what they believed, what they said was wrong? Or are we more excited when darkness is being brought to light, Right? Are we more excited when bad people fall or when darkness is being brought to light? Where are you and I, like Jonah, not extending the grace of God to other people who we disagree with, just the same way that God extended the grace, his mercy, to the Ninevites? So Jonah, again, is ha not happy with God's response to the Ninevites, but he's happy for this plan, again, that God has rescued him yet again. So here's what he says next in Jonah chapter 4, verse 7. 
Here's what happens next. When the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. And so he doesn't have much time to enjoy this plant. It lasted for a day. Again, we're supposed to, verse 6 and 7, are supposed to highlight to us God's ability both to deliver and to destroy. This is a theme throughout the book of Jonah that God gives, and he takes away, he delivers, and he destroys. He's saved Jonah again, and now he's going to destroy the plant. So here's how Jonah responds. Verse 8, here's what happens next. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. Right, kind of think of what's happening here. Have you ever been to the beach? So I went to school in Wilmington. I lived there for about six years. Have you ever been to the beach on like an extremely hot day? It's like 100 degrees out. It's like not even good. Even though there's water there, like you don't even want to be there. And then it makes it worse. If you've ever been on the beach on a hot day when it's, when it's windy and the sand is just blowing in your face, like it's miserable. This is probably what Jonah's experiencing times 100 and there's no water, right? When he says he almost faded, what scholars probably think is happening here that he either did or almost had a heat stroke. Right? He's probably dehydrated. It's extremely hot. He has no shade. Like Things are not going well for him, and he wants to die again. Now, in verse 3, he wanted to die because he was angered by God's right to deliver because he delivered the Ninevites. In verse 8, he wants to die because he's angered by God's right to destroy because God has destroyed the plant. And so he says he wants to die again, and here's God's response, verse 9. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? We asked him a question just like he asked him in verse 4. Is it right to be angry? Yes, it is right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. Right? He's mad again. He wants to die again. Now, what's interesting here is it leads us to this point. Again, this idea of this unfairness of God giving grace to others. We can think of it like this. Uh, that God's grace is only unfair to others when we don't see God's grace to us. God's kindness and his forgiveness and his love and his compassion for other people only seems unfair to us when we forget that God has been kind and compassionate and loving to us. I'll give you an example of this. I've got two kids, a five-year-old daughter, Finley, and when she was, you know, having all the major milestones in her life, right, she's learning to walk or saying a few words or potty training or when she, she stopped napping. And so we had her uh, learned, taught her how to do quiet time. So instead of napping, she still had to play in her room by herself for a little while. And each, each, of these kind of, each of these kind of moments in her life where she learned new things, we would kind of give her candy to kind of applaud that behavior, right? We want to encourage this behavior to continue. Well, now Roman, our two-year-old, is on the scene, uh, and he's awesome, and he's crazy. And about a couple, about two weeks ago, he stopped taking his nap. And so now we are training him to also do quiet time. And when he does quiet time well, and he comes out of quiet time, he gets a few M&Ms, he gets a piece of candy, something like that to, you know, to encourage good behavior in quiet time. Now, what's interesting is that when Finley, you know, they get out of quiet time together, when she sees that, what does you think she says? I want some candy. Right? To which we tell her, well, when you were two years old, we gave you candy. When you were learned, you don't get candy again. I'm just kidding. That would, be, that would not be nice, right? <laughs> but what's happening there? She is forgetting that when she was two years old and she did quiet time well when she was first learning, she was rewarded. And so in her mind, it would be unfair for her not to get candy when Roma's getting candy, even though she is forgetting that she also got candy when she was two. Now, again, she's five. Of course, she has no recollection of what's happening. But I think all of us can relate to that in our life, that when we forget when God has been kind and compassionate and gracious to us, 
and then we see him be kind and compassionate and gracious to other people, we think it's unfair simply because we forgot that God has treated us the same exact way. Again, to Jonah, this is unfair because he's blinded to the fact that God has given him the grace and mercy that he's given the Ninevites, but he just doesn't see it, right? He forgets God's grace is only unfair to others when we don't see God's grace to us. And so here is how the book of Jonah ends, verse 10 and 11. It says this, and the Lord said, you cared about the plant. So again, Jonah says he wants to die. Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals, right? If you hear about all these people, you didn't, you didn't create this plant, and, and yet you're, you're freaking out about it. What about all these people, right? God right here is he's showing Jonah's absurdity. Right? He's showing that Jonah cares more about this plant and the shade that he can get from the plant than 120 people created in the image of God. By the way, the plant that he had nothing to do with, that God graciously gave him. Right? The inconsistency here lies not with Jonah, I'm sorry, not with God, but with Jonah. Right? The problem here is not God's inconsistency. The problem is Jonah's. Right, and he even says this in the, in, the, in, our, in, the, in the translation that I'm reading from. It says animals. Other translations it says cattle. He's saying, "Look, like listen, you may not even care about the people, but we all know ain't nobody want no well done steak. Like, come on now, right? Why would we do? Why would we destroy that? We want medium, medium rare, maybe something in the middle, a little pink on the inside. We don't want you know, we don't want to destroy all this good steak just like that. What about that, right? Maybe I'm reading into it, but that's my uh, interpretation of what's happening here, right?" And here, to, to kind of give away a little bit, you might be wondering, why does Jonah so much not want to go to Nineveh? Like, let's say he doesn't like them, but God is kind of compassionate. Like, why is no skin off his back if he forgives them? What is Jonah's problem with the Ninevites' reaction? Well, again, in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, Jonah makes only one other appearance in the Old Testament where he goes to the king Jeroboam, who is the king over northern Israel at this time. Uh, he was a terrible king. Uh, Israel had been unfaithful in many ways, but yet Jonah prophesies to the king Jeroboam that Israel's territory and land will increase, right? And that's end up, that ends up happening. Now later, Hosea, again, who is also a prophet, a contemporary prophet of Jonah, prophesies to Jeroboam because of their wickedness, they actually were going to lose the land and they were going to fall into captivity because there had been a, a many generations of wickedness. God had been kind and compassionate, but now they were going to be judged. And so the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because the Ninevites were part of the kingdom of Assyria, which were going to be the kingdom that was going to come in and capture and take over Jerusalem. They were going to come in and overtake Israel. They were going to deport uh, some of the best and the brightest into Babylon. This is where you get the story of Daniel. It happens after this when the Assyrians come in. Uh, and Jonah, so Jonah doesn't want to preach repentance to the Ninevites. And he doesn't want, them to be, he doesn't want the Ninevites to repent because he wants the Ninevites to be destroyed. But if the Ninevites aren't destroyed, then God can use them to exact the justice that the Israelites deserve. And so he's upset because by him preaching to the Ninevites, he is going to play a part in Israel's uh, captivity, which, by the way, Israel did deserve. But to him, he thinks it's unfair. 
And so to, to close really our time in the book of Jonah, I think what's maybe one of the, the biggest things for us to learn and take away from, and I think especially in 2020 with this COVID stuff, with the racial injustices and the, very, the various opinions on that, uh, with the election now coming up in full swing, now that it's only a few months away, uh, and Joe Biden picked his vice presidential candidate, and so there's all this back and forth between all of that going on. I think what we need to understand, especially when it comes to the book of Jonah, is this, that God treats our enemies the same way that he treats us. God treats our enemies. God treats the people who vote differently, who look differently, who believe differently, who have different ideologies than we do, have different lifestyle choices than we do. He views them the same way that we, he views us. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to vote the same way and think the same thing. Like, that's impossible. There's, there's nothing wrong with having our convictions. Like, I think they're good and we should have them. And you can even be, if you want to be vocal about it, there's nothing wrong with that. But how we talk about the other side, it matters. And when we denigrate, when we call them names, uh, when we say things about them that Jesus himself would not say about them, well, then we're missing the point that God has treated them the same way that he has treated us. See, this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord over everything, and he came to us while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God. He sacrificed his life through his death, burial, and resurrection so that anyone that would turn and follow him can receive the grace and mercy of God like Jonah received, uh, like the Ninevites have received, not because of us or anything that we have done, but simply because we are honest about our need for God, honest about the ways that we have fallen short, and honest that we need God's grace and mercy in our life. You see, Jesus reacts totally different than Jonah does to those that are far from him. Jesus has not turned his back on them. Jesus has not called them names. Jesus has not looked down on them. He says, I am here. I give you kindness, and I give you compassion if you will turn to be. Now, again, to be clear and to be fair, God is a just God, and he will right every wrong one day that he will repay evil for those that have not trusted in him. These all things are true, but the gospel is the good news that Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is that God treated us as his enemies, and instead of treating us as the enemies that we were, he treated us like children. He gave of himself so that we could experience the grace and mercy of God. And in Jonah, again, at least in this instance, is missing this with the Ninevites. Now, we don't know what happens after this. Uh, it probably can be assumed to some degree that Jonah eventually comes to his senses and sees what God, that God is gracious and kind because, after all, he had to share the story for it to be written. Um, but we don't know for sure what happens to this. But, but what we do see is that God treats the Ninevites, God treats people that vote differently, that look differently, that do things differently than we do, the same way that he treats us. And, and to the degree that we believe that, to the degree that we understand that, it's the degree to which we will give people grace and compassion. Even though we disagree, even though we would do things differently, even though we take different stands, I think that's totally fine. But how we engage those that we disagree with matters. And if we understand that God treats them the same way that he treats us, I think it'll make us a more kind and compassionate people. Right? As we read Jonah, the question is, where are you and I like Jonah? Where are you and I not giving grace and compassion to those who deserve it or who need it the way that God has given grace and compassion to us? And where, in, where, are you, where can you and I follow Jesus, allow him and ask him to transform our heart so that we can be the people that he has called us to be? 
that no matter no, no matter Ninevite or not, their skin, the, the, the skin of your, the color of your skin or not, uh, the, the, who you vote for, who you don't vote for, all of those things are irrelevant into how we're supposed to treat and love other people. God treats our enemies the same way that he treats us. And the invitation is for us to follow Jesus, allow him to transform our life so that we can be delight to the world, not just in good intellectual theology, but also in our hearts. God treats our enemies the same way that he treats us. Let's pray.